1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. The Apostle Paul utterly demolishes all the arguments of the people who think that baptism in any form is really important to God so far as the salvation of the soul is concerned. Baptism is an outward symbol of something that took place within the individual. And the Apostle Paul was right in the middle of an argument where people in the church were running around saying, I am a follower of Paul. And somebody else said, I am a follower of Peter. And somebody said, I am a follower of Jesus. And the apostle gets very sarcastic, and he wants to know whether or not uh, Paul or Apollos or Peter were crucified for them, uh, whether or not uh, the essence of the gospel was men or God. And then, waxing even more sarcastic, and he could be one of the most sarcastic men in the world, the Apostle Paul said, I thank God, verse 14, I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius and some of the household of Stephanus. Apart from that, I can't remember whether I baptized any of you. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Baptism, communion, all of the things which are in the church, the ordinances and the forms, are just that. They're forms. The substance is always Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, Jesus didn't send me to get wound up in the exterior things. He sent me to do the most important thing in the world. Preach the good news. For the preaching of the cross of Christ is to them that are perishing, verse 18, foolishness. But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will utterly ruin the wisdom of the wise. I will reduce to nothing. The understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the professional arguer of the world? Has not God reduced to foolishness the wisdom of the world? Answer, of course. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom never knew God. With all the wisdom the Greeks had, with all the wisdom the Egyptians had, with all the wisdom of all the cultures of all mankind in its totality, in the wisdom of God, they never found him. The golden age of Greece led them to Plato's Republic, utter disaster, moral chaos, and multiple polytheistic worships. That was the golden age of Greece. The summit of man's wisdom led him to despair. And Paul very sarcastically said, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom couldn't get itself arrested. It couldn't find out anything about God. You know, we're in a world like that today. There are people all over the place advertising you can find God. Get into transcendental meditation. Meditate and you can find God. Go and hear Swami whatever his name is and you'll find God. Cross your legs and contemplate on a rock, a flower, and a cup of water in Zen, and you can find God. 
or dash off to a corner meeting with Jehovah's Witnesses and run into the theocratic kingdom and you will find God. Or go to the Mormons and you will find God. Or better than that, join a spiritistic seance, join hands and contact Aunt Hattie or Cousin Harry and you will find God. Never before in the history of mankind had there been so many people running around the landscape saying, here, 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 and nobody has found him yet. Is it because he isn't there? Of course not. It's because he is not going to be found except by the methodology which he has described. It is as clear in the revelation of God as could be. The world by wisdom never knew God. Yet it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God. God said, I'm going to save people anyhow and I'm going to do it by something the world considers foolish. Preach. For the Jews are always looking for miracles. And the Greeks are always looking for wisdom. But we are preaching Christ. Crucified. Unto the Jews, something that they trip over. And unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which have been summoned, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that is a phrase which ought to cause every person that reads the Bible to stop short. What does the apostle mean when he says, the foolishness of God? I can understand how human beings can be foolish because I deal with them every day. I can understand how I can be foolish because I have a long, accurate memory of the number of foolish things I've done. I can understand how the United Nations can be foolish. All you have to do is go there and watch how the nations of the world can be foolish. I can understand every degree of foolishness that I confront in life, but I cannot for the life of me conceive of how him, the one in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, can be foolish. How is God foolish? A fascinating statement. And yet, here it is in Scripture. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. And so I began my quest going through the Scriptures, trying to find out, because the Scripture tells us to search them, what was God's foolishness. And the Lord gave me a wonderful blessing. I've shared it many places and I've shared it here and share it again and again and again because it is the power of God to change the lives of men. The first man that I found in the Bible who was the perfect example of foolishness was a man named Noah. I have a friend named John Montgomery, professor of church history at Trinity Theological Seminary in near Chicago, and uh, he recently climbed Mount Ararat and then wrote a book the search for Noah's Ark. And up there at 14,800 feet, they have found an absolutely enormous, enormous hunk of wood. 
It's approximately 450 feet long. It looks to be about 50 to 75 feet thick and about 50 feet wide. What they've been able to see through the ice is at least, at least, the biblical dimensions. Nobody knows what it is. But it's sitting up there in frozen water, preserved perfectly. There are stories of what, was been, what has been found there. I heard a tape recording from an elderly man who had climbed it when he was a boy with his grandfather. And there he had stood on the deck of what he described was an enormous boat. And his description was a description of boats as they were built in very, very ancient times. He said that the deck was put together with, it looked like very large pegs. And that it was so big that he could, couldn't walk the entire distance of it without getting tired. He was just a small boy. His grandfather couldn't even climb up. He pushed him up and he climbed up to the deck and walked across it. And then, of course, there are testimonies of archaeologists and people that have gone up there. And Dr. Montgomery wrote this book, The Search for Noah's Ark. And they think they found it. The Russians are being very uncooperative. They don't want anybody to dig up there in the ice and find it. Because that, of course, would disprove their attacks upon the Scripture. And the Turks immediately want to open it up because it'll be the greatest single tourist attraction in the history of the world. They've even got sites picked out for holiday inns. And cable cars to take people up there. So they're obviously interested. Up there are approximately 50 million tons of lumber. And I have held a piece of it in my hand. And that lumber is white oak and it's impregnated with bituminous pitch. The scripture says that God commanded Noah to cover the ark with pitch inside and out. And there's no white oak within 200 miles of Mount Ararat. And besides, what's it doing at 14,800 feet? Dr. Montgomery says it is either the ark or the largest Turkish outhouse in all history. <laughs> I am not in a position to debate the findings with Dr. Montgomery. But there was a man named Noah of historical validity. And the Lord said to him, and we don't have any of the details, build a barge. He did not say build an ark. That's a beautiful word. We say ark, Noah's ark. It's very, very unromantic. It's a barge. Very large, square, totally unromantic, and very, very feasible so far as putting things inside of it. So Noah started to build. Of course, you can imagine what the reaction of the local neighborhood was. What are you doing, Noah, you and your sons? Oh, we're building a barge. Really? Why are you building a barge? Well, well I talked with the Lord recently, the creator of the universe, and he told me there's going to be a lot of water around here. There is? We're in the middle of the desert. What are you building this thing for? It's like building a sailboat in your basement. How are you going to get it out? And number two, when you get it out, what are you going to do with it? That said, well, God told me to build it. I'm going to build it. You talk with God regularly, every so often. Well, this went on, you know, for years and years and years, this crazy old man hammering and banging and sawing and putting this monstrosity together. And the neighbors must have thought he was ready for that, for Happydale. Everybody laughed at crazy old Noah till it started to rain. 
And it kept raining and it kept raining and it kept raining. After all, how long can you tread water? Nobody was laughing anymore. And that was the end. God deluged the earth with water. And the evidence is, on Mount Ararat at least, at 14,800 feet, that there is all forms of encrustation of sea life, which you don't find in volcanic rock, because volcanic rock, when it is extruded from the earth, is molten lava and nothing can live in it. But up there you've got seawater and all kinds of evidence that there was water at that level. Fantastic. Noah built his ark. He built it in the face of every kind of argument. He built his barge in the face of every kind of criticism. Noah went out and built the barge 120 years worth. And then he got inside and everybody laughed until. And Noah survived. Well, then I kept looking and I found somebody else. This fellow was really foolish. His name was Abraham. He was on Social Security from the Chaldean government. He had retired for a number of years. He was a well-known sheik in the community, member of the Lions Club, the Elks, the Oddfellows, the Masons, well thought of by the people in the neighborhood, had a good reputation, all the status symbols, probably had a couple of dinosaur-driven automobiles of the day, whatever he had. And then the Lord spoke to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be thou perfect. And Abraham said, right on, Lord, what do I do? And the Lord said, pack up everything you've got and head out into the desert and take Sarah with you. Abraham said, yes, sir. And the Lord said, I will make you the father of many nations because when I come back again, Sarah is going to become pregnant. And the scripture tells us, Abraham did not stagger at the promise of God. You know, that's a fantastic statement, but it's true. After all, a man pushing 100 with a wife pushing 90 has got to have a little bit of doubt in his mind. And after all, the Chaldean Gynecological Society would have a hemorrhage at that point. So Abraham packed everything up and he says, I'm going. And where are you going, Abraham? Sarah and I are going out into the desert. Really? Vacation? No. No. The Lord spoke to me. Who? El Shaddai, the all-powerful one, creator of the rolling spheres, God of gods, king of kings, sovereign of the universe, the only living and true God. He sent me out into the desert. And you know what? Sarah is going to have a baby. And I am going to become the father of many nations. And my children will be unable to be counted as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the heaven. I will be remembered for eternity. Abraham. Can you imagine the reaction? Good grief, he's flipped. The poor old guy, senility is caught up with him. The Chaldean Psychiatric Association give him a complete going over. He's just not safe to let run around loose. But he packed up and out he went into the desert. And from one flea-bitten tribe of Semites running around in the middle of the desert, God ordained the Davidic and the Solomonic thrones and through them came Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
in whom all the nations of the earth have been blessed as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens innumerable. Why? Because one man dared to believe absolute foolishness. You will become the father of many nations. Why? Because it is only sufficient that I say so. It doesn't make any difference what the world says. There's a lot of people in the world that think we're crazy. Nutty Christians running around telling everybody the only way to get saved is Jesus. I mean, they've blown it. It not make any difference what the world says. The only thing that makes any difference is what God has said. And that is the foolishness of preaching. Noah believed the foolishness of God. Build a barge when there was no water. Abraham believed the foolishness of God. Pack up and head into the desert. I will make you the father of innumerable nations. Go before me. I am God Almighty. Jimmy was singing before. Before the world, I am. I am. I am. Indeed. That is his name. Asha. Asher. Asha. I was. I am. I will be for all eternity. When Moses said to him, I've got to go back to Egypt, Lord, and I'm going to go. What shall I tell the children of Israel? And God said to him, This you shall say to the children of Israel. Asha hath sent me. They will know the eternal I am. When he went back, nobody questioned him. God had commanded. And they obeyed. And then I found Moses. Forty years living it up in Egypt. Forty years repenting in Midian. And then forty years doing what he was supposed to do to begin with. Sound familiar? <clears throat> That's your life and my life. Maybe not 120 years, but chop it up any way you want. That's the way the cookie crumbled. We've all been the Moses way. And that's the way Moses went. Prince of Egypt, shepherd of Midian, prophet of the living God. And the Lord called him at the age of 80 and said, It's time to go, Moses. Back in Egypt. Moses said, I can't, Lord. My picture's up in every post office. I'm wanted for murder. The KGB, the CIA, and everybody in Pharaoh's organization has got my name on there. The minute I show up, I've had it. The Lord said, Go, Moses, I will go with you. My presence will go before you. The vastness of energy that cannot be calculated was placed at the disposal of an 80-year-old man. God said, What do you got to worry about? The force that holds the galaxies together is going to go before you. Just go. Moses said, Yes, Lord. And back he went. And we all know the story. How he had a little argument with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, in one of the greatest dialogues of all history, said, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? I'm sure Moses looked him right in the eye and said, You should live so long. Who is the Lord? You should find out who the Lord is. Let my people go. He wouldn't. The Lord said, it's all right. 
I know he won't let him go. When I get finished with him, believe me, he will give you the land of Egypt just to get rid of you. Who is the Lord? Wait and see. You know, there are people that are very, very blasphemous and very blatant in their unbelief. They stagger around through life. Who is God? Blank, 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 blank. I'm going to live my life. It's my life. You ever meet those kind of people? I meet them all the time. I never forget it. I run into people like this all the time. You can't talk to them. You can't talk to them for a simple reason unless the Lord gives you the right words at the right moment. Can't say a thing. But the Lord gives you the right word at the right moment. You can say everything. I was once trying to move into my home with three small children in wintertime. And the only thing keeping me from getting in the house was the fact that I had a building inspector who wouldn't come up and inspect the house so I could get in. So I pleaded with people down in the town hall. I said, I've got to get in there. They said, well, this guy is a <clears throat> beep, beep, beep. Uh, and he won't let you in. And I said, well, let me talk to him. Well, you won't get anywhere. I said, let me talk to him. So they gave me his telephone number and I called him at home on a Saturday. That was a very bad day for him. And I called him up. I said, listen, I hate to bother you, but I've got to get my wife and my children in the house. It's wintertime. We just got the house finished. There's nothing wrong with it. I only need your certificate of occupancy. Will you just come over for 15 minutes and look through it and write it out so we can move in? He says, I wouldn't come over to your house if Jesus Christ asked me. <laughs> your adversary, the devil, stalks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, the Lord gave me just the right sentence. I would never have thought of it myself. I said, the time will come when Jesus Christ will not ask you anything. He will command you and you will come because you will be dead. And I hung up the phone. He was there in 15 minutes. Good morning, Reverend. Nice to see you. Nice house you have here. Hope you enjoy it. Never heard a word from him again. That was just the right thing God wanted to get through to him. I had a very good friend. We grew up together. There were a few years between us. He was really my older brother's buddy. But I loved him just like an older brother. He was the most blasphemous womanizing, boozing, absolutely degenerate human being I have ever met in my entire life, and I've met about every kind there is. He made his money in oil, and he could buy anything he wanted, and he did. Every time I would witness to him, he'd say, you don't really believe this Jesus jazz, do you, baby? And with that, he'd really zing me. And I witnessed to him till I was purple in the face. Man, he roasted me every chance he got. You would say, impossible. God's ever going to do anything with that kind of man. I met him in Singapore a few years ago. And we were chatting and beating the breeze. And I was telling him about the Lord. Oh, he wouldn't have anything to do with this. He didn't need any of this stuff. Then he came back to the United States. And he contracted a rare disease. An inflammation of the lining of the heart. And this great brute of a man, great powerful man, suddenly was reduced to a shadow of himself. 
All his money couldn't help him. All his women were memories. All his strength was gone. Everything he had ever leaned on all his life had disintegrated and disappeared. And I made a special trip to the hospital to see him. And he was lying in bed, just a shadow of himself. When I came in the room, he recognized me. He said, help me up, and I pulled him erect in the bed. He put his head down and he said, I'm dying. And I said, did the doctor tell you that? He said, yes. I said, are you sure you're going to die? He said, yes. And his lip trembled. He was a courageous man. He said, everything's in order. I said, it isn't. He said, what? I said, it isn't in order, Jack. He says, what, what do you mean? I said, it's not in order with God. I said, but I've got some wonderful news for you. What I've been telling you all these years is still true. The Lord Jesus is here tonight, and he wants to save you. I said, it's no cop-out to come to God. It's a cop-out not to. Why don't you trust Christ? And I witnessed to him. I took him by that great massive paw of his. I said, Jackie, do you want Jesus? And the tears rolled down his hardened face. And he said, yes, I need him. And I said, all right, let's pray. And we prayed together. And that night, in just a moment of time, Jesus Christ came into that room and into that man's life and into his soul. And he was born again. And he didn't die in that hospital then. He went home rejoicing. Some months later he died, but he died a believer. Don't ever give up on people. Because what is utterly incredible and totally foolish with you and me is the essence of divine wisdom. Moses led them out of the land of Egypt. And we know the story of how they got to the shores of the Red Sea and how the Egyptians changed their minds. Pharaoh said, I must have been thinking crazy that day to let these Jews get out of here. Go get them. And he whips into his chariot and takes off with his crack troops. And there's Moses. With Pharaoh chasing him with a vengeance, the ocean in front of him, and the desert on either side. I do not think that's an enviable position militarily. And Moses, whatever he was, was not General MacArthur. And Moses said, I must talk with the Lord. And so he went and prayed. When he came out, he was radiant. What are we going to do? Moses said, don't worry. Get everybody ready. Walk up to the edge of the water. What are we going to do? Boats? No. Just walk over. So two million people started to walk toward the water. And this old man walks over to the water and lifts his rod. And the waters roll back. You say, that's an incredible thing. Waters roll back. I mean, you don't really believe something like that. 
Listen, baby, the God that can hold a billion galaxies together can open the waters of the Pacific Ocean like an envelope on Monday morning. You're not going to have any problem with the Red Sea. It's a little drainage ditch in the Mediterranean. God just said, now! And they went back. Oh, the higher critics have had fun with this one. There was a strong east wind. And it was the Sea of Reeds. And it was very marshy. And the wind dried out the land. And Moses and these marvelous, faithful Jews marched across that ankle-deep water. Two million of them to the other side. That was the miracle. The people that talk like this have lost their marbles. They've given us a greater miracle than we ever asked for. Because the Egyptians drowned a whole army in six inches of water. That's a bigger miracle than opening the ocean. But the waters rolled back and the Jews got through to the other side. And Pharaoh says, anything they can do, we can do better. So down they go after the Jews. They get about two-thirds of the way across, and the Lord says, anytime you're ready, Moses. Moses drops the rod, and the waters whoosh, back again. That was the greatest single mass baptism in all history, and it was by immersion. I don't want to offend any Presbyterians that are here, but it was by immersion. It was not the kind of immersion we practice in the Baptist church. In our immersion, they go down and they came up. In that immersion, they went down, but nobody came up. Noah, build a barge where there's no water. Abraham, go out into the desert. Your wife's going to have a baby. Moses, lift up your staff, and I'll take care of the ocean. Then, of course, there was Joshua. He had the worst foolishness of all. He got into a land surrounded by four or five times as many people as he had. And he fought his way through the land, hammer and tongs, till he got to Jericho. And the walls were at least 65 feet high and in places 15 feet thick. When they got there, they knew if they didn't take Jericho, they lost everything. The people in the land would surround them and just annihilate them. Joshua said, I must have a talk with the Lord. So he went into conference with God. The Lord says, no problem at all. Get everybody together and march around the city six days. And on the seventh day, march around the seventh time and then blow your horn seven times. Joshua said, that's what you want me to do? No catapults? Maybe just a little bazooka? Maybe a little earthquake? Something? God, don't worry about it. Blow the horns. Joshua said, all right. Came back. His generals are waiting for him eagerly. General Joshua, what is the word from the Lord? This is the word from the Lord, men. We gather the whole people together. Wonderful. And then we charge the city. No, we don't charge the city. We make ladders and we go up over the walls. No, we don't do that either. We make a battering ram and we hit against the gates. No, we don't do that either. What do we do? We march around for seven days, and then we blow our horns. <laughs> what did you say? Man, you flipped. How foolish can you get? Joshua says, 
Listen, if God says blow your horn, blow it, baby. Get moving. And around they went six days around the city. And the seventh day, can you imagine the people inside the city? There's crazy Jews doing out there. They're getting ready to go home the first day. No, they're not. They're going to dig a trench. No, they're not. They're going to build catapults the third day. No, they're not. They're going to charge the walls. No, they're trying to demoralize us. This is going on the sixth day. The seventh day, the ark is out there, and around they are going. And finally, da -da, da -da, da -da, and the walls come down. You know, everybody used to laugh and say, you don't really believe that old biblical nonsense about the walls coming down, do you? Why not? When they unearthed Jericho, the archaeologists found the walls flat down, facing out. Exactly the way God said it was going to be. Nobody breached the walls of Jericho. They were knocked down from within. Not even an earthquake can account for that. A nice, neat circle. Just as if an enormous hand came down and played sandcastle with the wall. And Joshua said, That's it! Charge! And they went in and took Jericho. Noah, build a barge. There's no water. Abraham, go out into the desert. You're going to become big daddy for the nations. Moses... Lift up your staff. Joshua, blow the horn. And then, of course, there was Naaman the Syrian. We have to choose somebody who's a Gentile, make everybody happy. Naaman was the General MacArthur of his day, the great commander-in-chief of the Syrian forces. But he was a leper. And leprosy meant only one thing, to be cast out and to lose everything. And he was a noble man. And he heard that there was a prophet in the land of Israel. And so he decided to go there and ask to be healed. So he loaded up a packed train with all the things that he could. It's amazing how people are still doing the same thing. They want God to do something, so they load up their pack train. All the things they're going to give God if God will only do something for them. That's exactly what Naaman did. Piled up the pack train with gold and silver and the fruits of his conquest. He would trade everything to get rid of his leprosy. And when he got there <clears throat> and arrived at Jerusalem, they told Elijah that he was there. What shall we do with him? After all, he's a great and noble person. Well, don't get too upset about it. Tell him to go down and dip himself seven times in the River Jordan. You want me to tell the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army to go take a bath? That's right, Gehazi. You run right over there and tell him to take a bath. But he wants to see you. I'm busy right now. I'm talking to the Lord. But just tell him to take a bath. Oh, all right. He goes out and Naaman is sitting there waiting for these great words of wisdom. Gehazi says, I have talked with the prophet of the Lord. Yes, what does he want me to do? Take a bath. Seven times in the river Jordan. And the Lord will heal you. Well, Naaman blew it. He said, I am not going down in that miserable mud pole, Jordan. What's the matter with my rivers in Damascus? They're beautiful. I'm going to get down into that thing? Not me. I'm going home. He turns his horse around and his servant grabs him by the arm. He says, 
beloved leader. If he had asked you to conquer a nation, would you have done so? He said, of course. He has only asked you to bathe in the river. So Naaman, commander-in-chief of the hosts of Syria, rode his horse down to the muddy old Jordan, took off his costly raiment, went into the waters and dipped himself seven times. And the scripture says when he came forth, his flesh was as the flesh of a newborn baby. Utterly foolish to cure leprosy by dipping yourself seven times in a dirty river. But that's what God told him to do. Now review that for a moment. The foolishness of God was build a barge where there was no water. The foolishness of God was go out into the desert and build an empire when you were too old to have children. The foolishness of God was lift your rod over an ocean when there was no escape. The foolishness of God was march around a city and blow your horn. The foolishness of God was dip yourself seven times in the River Jordan. Every single instance is foolish, irrational, illogical, unreasonable, and has no content whatsoever that the mind of man should exercise faith in. It is contrary to everything we know experientially. Yet God demanded it as a condition because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. What is the foolishness of God? It is divine wisdom demanding faith. God is demanding the substance of what you hope for and the evidence of the intangible. And you know, God has one more piece of foolishness which is greater than all the rest of the foolishness that's in the Bible. All the rest of the foolishness greater than Noah, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Naaman, greater than all of them. The greatest foolishness of God is this, that he intends to save mankind through the death of a crucified Jewish carpenter who died outside the walls of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, whom he personally resurrected from the dead and enthroned at his own right hand and said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. All the angels of God will worship you. Sit at my right hand. I will cause your enemies to become your footstool. And at the mention of your name, the universe will bow and they will proclaim you, Jesus Christ is Lord to my eternal glory. Sit here. I have ordained it. The cosmos will worship you. Only be patient. And to us, he has said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. Preach the foolishness of God. Preach the illogic and the irrationality. Preach what men call madness. For what they call foolishness is wisdom. What they call madness is sanity. What they call illogical 
is the zenith of logic. God has ordained that his ultimate foolishness is to save men by the preaching of the cross. And lest we ever forget it, let's not forget what Christ has saved us from. Christians sometimes get the idea that because they are Christians, they can forget the past. God doesn't want us to forget what we have been redeemed from. God wants us to remember what we have been redeemed from. He wants us to forget the horror and remember the glory of redemption. You know, the only being in the universe that can will to forget is God. You can't and I can't. But He can. And He says, I will remember your sins against you no more. But you want to know what you really were before God saved you? Well, listen, because the apostles saw fit to tell us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you know your calling, my brothers, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble have been called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are nothing that he may bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh may ever stand in his presence and glory. But through him, you have become in Christ Jesus, who, through God, has been made for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that is glorying, let him glory in the Lord. You were foolish, you were weak, you were base, you were despised, you were nothing, and so was I. And God chose us to take these vessels of clay and to infuse within them his Holy Spirit that the excellency of the glory might be of God and not of us that we might be transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ so that right this moment we stand in his presence just as if we had never sinned, whole and complete. The old hymn is right. We touch him in life's press and throng and we are whole again. That's the good news of the foolishness of God. Jesus Christ loves you. And his foolishness is that you be born again. Tonight, believe the foolishness of God. Believe what you really are as God sees you. And then believe what you can become through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to die tonight... 
you would stand in the presence of the judge of the universe. And if he were to ask you, what is your right to heaven? Why should I let you in? You would have no answer whatsoever unless you could say, Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That is the heritage of the saints and the excellency of the glory is of God. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be ineffectual. But Christ sent me to preach the truth of redemption, the foolishness of God. And when men say that's foolish, when men say that's illogical, when men say that's irrational, when men say that's unreasonable, remember what God says. Everything you think it is, is because you are seeing it through the colored or discolored glasses of sin. I am seeing it as it really is. And I'm going to tell you, says God, the way it really is. This is it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. The foolishness of God.